Well, good morning. I invite you to turn to John chapter 11. So like many of you, I hate being late. I hate that feeling of anxiety when you're trying to get someplace on time, you're trying to get to work, or maybe this morning, uh, trying to get to church or to a doctor's appointment, whatever it is. And, and you know, uh, when you're in a rush and events are conspiring against you, this morning uh, our iron decided to die. Plugged it in, it didn't work. Yesterday it worked, today it didn't work. And uh, there are those times when you, you get in your car and you hit one traffic light after another, or maybe you can't find your keys, or you can't find your wallet, or you're on your way, and you think you're going to make it just in time, and you discover that you have to make a, an important stop along the way, and so you're delayed. And I, I've been thinking about that because through this resurrection series that we've been in this, the past two weeks, this theme of uh, the sovereignty of God and the timing of the events of our life has crap, uh, cropped up a couple of times. Uh, Matthew Hodges preached two weeks ago, Jesus is always on time. That was one of the points in his sermon. Jesus is always on time. And Jim preached last week that even though Jesus didn't reach uh, Jairus' daughter before she died, Jesus was still on time, even though he was late from their perspective. God's timing in life is perfect. He is sovereignly in control. And it's so amazing when we read about Jesus in the Gospels, you never see where he's rushed or running late or uh, frazzled like we are. He, he trusts in the Father's sovereign plan each step of the way. He takes each event as they come. And it's a good reminder for us this morning to, to trust in the Lord in the events of our lives. Well, God's sovereignty in the course of life figures into our passage today. Martha and Mary struggle with Jesus' timing. From their perspective, Jesus has turned up late. If you've turned with me to John chapter 11, I'm going to begin reading in verse 38. But first, just let me kind of summarize what's already happened in the first part of this chapter, kind of bring us to the moment where we're going to spend the balance of our time. We read at the end of chapter 10 that Jesus has just left Judea. He's crossed the Jordan where John the Baptist was baptizing, it says. He receives word from Mary and Martha that their brother is very ill. And Jesus is very specific that Lazarus' illness is not going to lead to death. He says that. He delays in coming to them, but after two days he sets off back to return to Bethany in Judea. But the disciples are nervous because of all the threats that Jesus had received. That's one of the reasons they left. Jesus arrives in Bethany and word gets to Martha. And we learn that, in fact, Lazarus has been dead four days, in the tomb, four days. Jesus tells Martha that Lazarus will rise again. He sends Martha to fetch Mary, and Mary, evidently unaware that Jesus has arrived, gets up immediately and sets out, and all the people that were with her see her leave abruptly, and they think perhaps she's going to the grave, and they go with her. These are people from Bethany that have come to console her, and also those that have come from Jerusalem to be with her. They meet Jesus, where Mary repeats Martha's refrain, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus is deeply moved and asked to be taken to the tomb. And that's where we pick up in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, 
for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted his eyes, lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now as we gather to hear it preached that you would make your word central, uh, that you would speak through me this message of Christ and of his life that he has come to give us in him. And thank you for this miracle of Lazarus. I pray that you would teach us through it. Open our eyes to you and give us faith. Help us to hear with words of faith. Set a guard over my mouth, Father, that I'd only speak what's true and uplifting. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's our our main point, the main point that I want to draw out for you from this passage today. Jesus calls people to believe that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, and gives them a sign of his identity by raising Lazarus from the dead. So Jesus is calling people to believe in him, that he is the Son, and he gives them a sign by raising Lazarus from the dead. So I want to start in verse 38, and my first point is that our lack of belief grieves God. I'm going to try to show that to you from verse 38, that our lack of belief grieves God. It says here, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. It says he came again. He was moved again. Looking up at verse 33, we read, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit, and greatly troubled, and he said, Where have you laid him? They said, Come and see, and Jesus wept. And your, your Bible may have a little footnote here. In, in the ESV, it says, uh, right next to deeply moved, it has a footnote that says it can also be translated as indignant. This deeply moved can be also translated as indignant. So you know here that the translators had to make a decision. And depending on what Bible you're looking at, there, there may be uh, slight emphasis differences there, deeply moved or indignant. And so we have to kind of decide what these verses are trying to tell us. These, these strong feelings that Jesus is feeling when the crowds come up and he sees all the weeping and he weeps, what are they caused by? Is he overcome by this uh, human emotion? We know that he is fully man and fully God, so he's fully man. He has these human emotions. Is he overcome? Is he, rejoicing with, is he weeping with those who weep, as the verse says? And I think that's a tempting answer. It may, that may be in part what's going on. But I think there's more to it. I'm not fully convinced that it was just him kind of entering in and being compassionate and, and sharing in this. He's already uh, indicated that he's going to raise Lazarus, so we, he already knows what he's going to do. And if you remember last week when Jim, Jim preached on uh, Jairus' daughter uh, on, from Luke 8, he says, do not weep. For she is not dead, only sleeping. So we have this instruction, do not weep, for she is only sleeping. So I believe that what's caused Jesus to be deeply moved in his spirit, and perhaps even indignant, was the overwhelming lack of faith and belief that all those that were around him were displaying. Mary, as I've said, has repeated Martha's lament that if only Jesus had come sooner, he could have done something about her sick brother. The implication is that Jesus has showed up late. They weep as ones with no hope. And he's already said that he's the resurrection and the life and that he's 
standing there with them. And, and perhaps this reminds you of another time that Jesus wept. Or chronologically speaking, from this perspective, it's going to happen later, after Lazarus is raised from the dead. Jesus comes in, uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem, his last week. And uh, we learn in Luke chapter 19, reading from Luke 19, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. So this is another time that Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. And he said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus weeps over the city's unbelief, over their sin, over their lostness. And as Jesus meets these mourners in John 11 and walks to the tomb of Lazarus, he is indignant over the unbelief and rejection of the people that he has come to save. John 1.10 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The Bible is clear that the wages of our sin is death. And James tells us, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See how troubled Jesus is over sin and unbelief. It's, it's deadly serious. The tears of Jesus are to arrest our conscience this morning. It's to stir up our soul. It's to shake us from our slumber. We need to sit up straight. We need to lean in and listen closely. What is it that causes Jesus grief? What is it that causes him to shed a tear? It's our sin and our lostness and our unbelief. And and we've been trained by our culture to kind of think of belief as a a private matter. That's something I wanted to bring up today. Our culture kind of trains us to think about these are the things that you don't talk about in polite company. You don't talk about a number of things, but one of them being your belief. There are private beliefs, and they're really of no importance but to the individual that holds that belief. And we see here that our private belief is very much the business of the Son of God. We're reminded here that Jesus very much takes an interest in what you believe privately, however private you think it is. And and I find this belief, this this, uh, grief that Jesus expresses as he is at the tomb of Lazarus, significant for another reason. It's contrary to how how our culture shapes our belief about death. We live in a very naturalistic age. The law of nature is king. We're told that everything lives and everything dies. It's very poetic. When we, when we address death as a culture, we assign death to the role of a tidy little bookend at the other bookend of birth. It's all nice, nice and neat. And our culture wants us to, tra- to think about death as just this sort of benign punctuation mark at the end of life. For our culture, death is not the thing that ushers us into the presence of God to give accounts for our life. It's not the result of sin in the world. It's not the result of brokenness. Death is just simply this thing that happens. It's a part of life. It's natural. Jesus is deeply moved by the unbelief of the people and the judgment that awaits them at death. So I want to stop and take a moment here and have you think, what does it mean to face death well? What does it mean to die well? When you consider what it means to die well, do you, do you envision a kind of a bucket list that you've successfully checked? I hear that phrase a lot, bucket list. Places you want to visit, experiences you want to have, 
maybe lessons you want to pass on to the next generation, to your children or grandchildren. And there are value in those things, surely. But our passage urges us to consider that dying well means living well for Jesus. Living with a faith and a belief in the person of Jesus and his works on our behalf. If you're going to die well, you need to live well with a faith in Jesus. And then also, this passage, this verse, causes us to think about, do we have a proper biblical understanding of death? Do you believe to die without Christ is to face the wrath of God for your sins? And does that knowledge give you a, a proper concern for yourself and a proper concern for your neighbor who are outside of Christ? Or are we kind of bought into what the culture says about death just being a natural part of life, bought into this idea of private faith? It's going to be difficult for us to kind of have the compassion for lost people that we need if we don't reject the cultural's dogma over private faith and the natural process of death. Those outside of Christ still in unbelief, will face God's wrath. So that's, that's verse 38. Jesus is standing at the tomb of Lazarus, deeply moved in his spirit because of the unbelief of the people. My next point, my second point is, unbelief blinds us to the truth, but belief allows us to see the glory of God. Unbelief blinds us to the truth, but belief allows us to see the glory of God. In verse 39 it says, Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Verses 39 and 40. Jesus gives instructions that the stone be moved away, that the mouth be uncovered. And I think we can safely assume that that, I mean, if you were there and Jesus said, move away the stone, wouldn't that shock you? It's, it's shocking. You've, you've come to Jesus. He's, he's mourning. He's weeping. You're thinking he's coming to pay his respects. And he says, remove the stone. It's a, it's a shocking thing. The people probably knew something of Jesus' ministry. They had heard of him. They had maybe even seen him in Bethany before, his teaching. And, and John records, I, I, as an exercise to prepare for the sermon, I read through uh, leading up to chapter 11 through John. And, and it, it struck me how uh, shocking each chapter was. Each chapter, Jesus said something shocking that confused people. Um, in John 6, the, the day after feeding the 5,000, he told the people that unless they ate his flesh and drank his blood, that they had no life in him. John 7, he's teaching in the temple and the people cry out, you have a demon. Chapter 8, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am making himself equal with God. And they picked up stones. They wanted to stone him. So perhaps as he approached the, the, the tomb weeping and uh, they think he's going to do something normal now. He's going to do something that they expect. But he does something completely unexpected. He says, roll away the stone. And upon hearing Jesus' command to roll away the stone, Martha tries to intervene. She doesn't understand what Jesus is about to do. She doesn't understand what he told her in verse 23. Your brother will rise again. At the time, she assumed he was talking about the end of, end of time, the last resurrection even though he told her that he is the resurrection of life, she wasn't prepared for what was about to happen. And she resists Jesus' commands. Lord, don't you know that he's been in the tomb four days? His body will already have given in to that process of death and decay. Now there will be an odor that will be overwhelming. That's why the tomb is sealed. Martha thought she had the situation completely figured out in her mind. Any reasonable person could see 
that when this, the tomb is sealed, you don't unseal it. Let me tell you, Jesus, something that you don't know. And, and as silly as that sounds to us, I fear that we do the same thing all the time in our day-to-day life. We think that we have all the facts. We think we know what we're doing. We think we know how to run our lives, and perhaps we think we know how to run the lives of other people around us. We think we can help God along. And why do we forget that we can barely see beyond the end of our own nose? We don't have all the facts. We can't control anything. But God sees the the beginning from the end. He sees it all. God works all things to the counsel of his own will. He does not consult any man. He is not limited in knowledge, power, will. He does not fail. He does not make mistakes. And Martha's unbelief is sadly not all that uncommon in in the New Testament or in in the Bible for that matter. I've already referenced the feeding of the 5,000. You remember the unbelief of the disciples and what they replied to Jesus. If we had like a lot of money, we couldn't buy any, enough food for just to give them all a scrap. But Jesus, the bread of life, stood right before them. Or you might be thinking of the disciples in the boat. They're being tossed about by the storm and they rushed to wake up Jesus who was sleeping and, and they said, don't you care that we're about to die? But Jesus, the word who was with God in the beginning, in him was life, he was with them in the boat. But they didn't see, they didn't believe. Or Matthew 16, another illustration of unbelief. Starting in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You are not setting your, things, your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And that was Martha's problem. That's our problem. Our lack of belief blinds us to the truth of God, to what God says in the Bible about himself, about mankind, about life. When we stray from the truth of the word, we begin to believe half-truths and lies. Well, there's kind of two, coin, two sides to this coin. If, if our unbelief blinds us, Jesus tells Martha in verse 40, if she believed, she would see the glory of God. Now, as we look back to Jesus' first interaction with Martha, starting in verse 21, we're not going to find this exact phrase, this exact sentence, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. And John either doesn't record it for us, or maybe he's simply summarizing what he tells her in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And we know that the miracle of this resurrection is associated with the glory of God. Jesus tells the disciples that Lazarus' illness does not lead to death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And Paul when he was speaking about Christian uh, baptism, tells us in the letter to the Romans, Romans 6, 3, Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were, baptized, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, <clears throat> in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And here in our passage He says to Martha, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. So what's the implication? 
The implication is that though that through this miracle of the resurrection of <clears throat> her brother Lazarus, Martha will behold the power and glory of God at work. And this display of glory will bring glory to God as Jesus the Son is glorified. Now I've already said that our belief, that our unbelief blinds us to the truth. And as we saw in Martha's attempt to dissuade Jesus from opening the tomb. But in what way does our belief allow us to see the glory of God? That's what Jesus says to her. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? If you believe, you will see, is what he says. And here's what I think Jesus is saying. There are a lot of people gathered in front of this tomb. Mary, Martha, the disciples that came with Jesus, the residents of Bethany, and the mourners from Jerusalem. We know many gathered there were followers of Jesus. They believed. But there were many doubters there as well. In verse 37, we kind of get a glimpse of that. Some in the crowd were whispering about Jesus. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? And we know from what John tells us in verse 46 after this passage that some of the people who witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus actually went back and tattled on Jesus, went to the Pharisees who were always trying to discredit Jesus and were actually plotting to kill Jesus. And they, they, they told what they had seen. So picture this with me. Everyone is going to see the miracle, but not everyone is going to believe. When Jesus fed the 5,000, the next day some abandoned Jesus. When he healed the man with the withered hand in the temple, they were mad at him because he healed on the Sabbath. And here, they witnessed a dead man come out of the grave, but they had no place for Jesus in their heart. So you see, if you believe Jesus is the Son of God, you will see the glory of God. The resurrection of Lazarus will cause you to rejoice and give God the glory as you glorify Jesus. If you do not believe, then you will be unmoved. It kind of reminds me of something that, that skeptics say. They like to say about the, the timing of the coming of Jesus. Maybe you've heard this. Skeptics will ask, why didn't God send Jesus in the modern age when his works could be more widely broadcast and, and investigated with our modern investigative techniques? Well, maybe you could observe from this passage this morning that these people had direct access to Jesus. They could see and touch all that he did, and yet there were those who believed and those who didn't believe. Nothing to do about what age we were in. If it was the modern age and we saw a a clip uh, on YouTube or on TV or a picture of something, we could still come up with doubts. The, The age that we live in doesn't matter. Some believe and some did not. And those that did not, I'm sure, felt completely justified in their minds as to why they didn't. So take a moment with me and consider the role of belief what that role of belief plays in your own life. If you have not yet believed in Jesus, what would you say are the sources of truth in your life? And I tried to think about that, and I think probably some popular answers to the question about sources of truth apart from Christ, uh, personal convictions, wisdom passed down from my parents, maybe this concept of settled wisdom passed down from the ages, scientific facts, objective news, if there is such a thing. If you don't yet have a belief in the God of the Bible, then where do you find truth? Where do you go to navigate life? And what comfort do you have in answering the bigger questions of life? 
And if you feel like that kind of defines you this morning, that you don't have that personal faith in Christ, then I'd encourage you to wrestle with the fact that John reveals to us in this passage that unbelief will blind you to the truth about God and about Jesus. Other sources of truth aren't fully sufficient to tell you the whole truth about life and about a life that pleases God. And if you are following Jesus, and you would agree with Martha's statement in verse 27, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. If that's you this morning, I'd invite you to consider some things as well. I'd invite you to consider the areas of your life where you are failing to believe the promises of God. The writer of Hebrews reminds us in chapter 11, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And this is our daily call as Christians as we try to walk this life with Christ. We must continue to believe the promises of God. So let me ask you this. Are you faithfully and regularly taking in the word of God? The one place where we can actually find truth. Think about this past week or past couple of weeks your personal devotions, uh, your attendance at church? Are you taking in a good supply of truth from God's word? Are you opening your Bible and studying it? You need to be reading and you need to be hearing the word of God, but you need to be doing it with faith. And that's the second thing I would challenge you on this morning. Are you hearing the word of God with an active mind, an active faith? You need to listen intently to what God is saying and then act on it. And so as you struggle with the issues of your life, perhaps you need to fill in the blank here, but are they financial struggles? Uh, Struggles with your physical health, mental health, spiritual health? Are you struggling to care for the needs of your family? Struggling in relationships with a spouse or child or coworker? Recall then as you're struggling with those things and you're trying to apply the truth of God's word, if you're trying to believe in him, Recall what he says and and promises to you that he'll never leave you or forsake you. Recall that he welcomes you to bring to him all of your needs in prayer and he will answer you. Recall by faith that he will not let your enemies overcome you. Recall that he delights to provide for you and care for you as his precious children. And if you'll take in God's word and his precious promises to you and believe them, you will see his glory in your own life. The glory of God that raised Lazarus from the dead and that raised Jesus from the dead is still at work in the world today as the gospel goes forth, proclaiming Jesus, and as the power of God operates in our own lives. We need to take God's word and believe it and to rely on it to prove it's true in our own life. So in these verses, we see that the unbelief blinds us to the truth, but belief belief allows us to see the glory of God. My, My final point here, Our belief in Jesus is justified. We're going to look at the remaining of these verses and go a little quickly here. Our belief in Jesus is justified. Starting in verse 41. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I knew that you always hear me, and I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And so now we come to the main part of the story, the miracle itself, that the stone is rolled away. 
I imagine the people are just waiting to see what is going to happen. I would be sort of on the edge of my seat. What's going to happen? Jesus lifts up his eyes in an attitude of prayer to the Father, and he prays aloud. But notice how Jesus prays. He didn't pray like I might have prayed. He didn't pray, Lord, if you will do this for me, I'll do that for you. It's kind of this bargaining prayer. He doesn't engage God, his Father, like that. There's no bargaining. And there's no hesitation in his prayer. Like, maybe there's like doubting, you know, is this going to happen? That's what I would be doing if I was praying for a miracle. His, his, his prayer is rather kind of straightforward. And in fact, as you read and, and look at it, it almost seems as if he's praying it for the, on behalf of the people who are listening to him. Jesus knows that God, his Father, has planned to raise Lazarus from the dead. John doesn't tell us when it happened, but Jesus says what he says in the past tense. I don't know if you noticed that. I thank you that you heard me. Jesus and the Father act in concert with one another. God speaks of Jesus, quote, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. John tells us, the Gospel of John tells us in chapter 1, speaking about Jesus, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And Jesus says of himself in chapter 8, I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And why does Jesus pray if he is sure that God has already heard him and is going to raise Lazarus from the grave? And he tells us in verse 42 that it's on account of those who are listening, that they might believe that God the Father sent Jesus as the Messiah. The Jews had been waiting for the fulfillment of the promises the prophets spoke about in the Old Testament. They were waiting for that fulfillment. And Jesus comes on the scene and he's rejected by most of the religious leaders. He was rejected by a lot of the people. But there were still those who hadn't come to a conclusion about Jesus. They were on the fence. They were unsure. And Jesus wants them and wants us today to know that all that he did while ministering on earth was done in the name and by the blessing of the Father. That's why he prays. John 3.16 reassures us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So after he establishes the, the basis by which he's about to do this miracle, he calls out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And what happens? Well, of course, John's very clear that Jesus raised a dead man, Lazarus, from the grave. God had heard Jesus and had granted his request. He had determined that Lazarus should be raised from the grave to bring glory to God through Jesus. And Lazarus comes out still bound up in his grave cloth. And I I assume that Jesus did this by his voice, uh, by raising of Lazarus, by that command, Lazarus, come out. It reminds us of what John tells us at the beginning of the gospel, that Jesus was the word who was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. And we, we know from Genesis that God creates the world and speaks it into existence by his word. So here at the, the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus is again pictured by giving life with his word. And as we've already talked about, those who believed or who would believe that Jesus was sent from the Father saw the glory of God. They saw the miracle of Lazarus with their eyes of faith and thus fulfilled the purpose of God had in it. We hear this clearly in Jesus' prayer from John 17. Uh, Gary was reading from that earlier. I'll read you a different part. It says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. 
Lazarus was raised to bring glory to Jesus and God the Father. He was raised that we might believe and that we will continue to believe. And this actually corresponds with the purpose of the entire Gospel of John. He tells us in 20, chapter 20, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, so this story of Lazarus is written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The resurrection of Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son, they all foreshadow Jesus' own glorious resurrection where our hope is grounded. Our hope in life is grounded in Jesus' resurrection. If God accepted Jesus' sacrifice, then he will accept us. He will raise us up on the last day. And, And Lazarus' resurrection kind of points forward to our own resurrection that we can have confidence that we will be raised. If we follow Christ, then we can take encouragement this morning that Jesus is, in fact, God's son. He demonstrates his sonship through so many signs while on earth and through all that he taught us. So finally, let us consider how we can carry this truth from God's word, how we can carry it and believe it and and prove it, how we can take it into our week, how we can rely on it this week. I want to invite you to think about some things that are coming up in your life. What are the trials that you are facing? What are the struggles, perhaps? Your health, a diagnosis that hasn't come in yet? I invite you to believe and remember that the Lord Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Perhaps you need to meditate on this truth as you're driving into work tomorrow, or wherever you work, or whatever kind of work you do. You need to meditate on this fact as you're struggling to believe that you're making a difference where God has put you, as you're struggling with maybe the friction and and trial in your life. God has called you to himself through his son, Jesus, because he loves you and and you will be happy in life if you have Christ. You'll be happy in the next life because you are united with Jesus. This morning, if God has opened your eyes to the glory of his son, Jesus, then you are deeply blessed indeed. Life may be exceedingly difficult and trying for you, and you may feel over and over that you are losing your way. But if you know Jesus, then you know the Father. If you know Jesus this morning and are known by him, then you have taken hold of eternal life. Though you feel in this life like you're groping around in the darkness, you are walking in the light because of Christ. Though you feel faint from trials and anxiety of life, You have Jesus to nourish you, the very bread of life. Though you don't know the way to go, you in fact have the way, the truth, and the life. You have Christ. And though at times you may despair of life, you will one day, and one day will physically depart this world, you do not need to fear or fret because you have Jesus, the resurrection and the life. And in this this morning, if you don't have these things, if you don't yet believe in Jesus, if you haven't yoked yourself to Christ then this message is for you too. Call out to Jesus today to save you. Ask him for the faith to believe. Believe in all that Jesus did and taught. Know that God has sent his son as the savior of the world and that you can receive this salvation by placing your faith in Jesus. Forsake and confess your sin. Call out to Jesus to save you. Leave your old life behind and begin to follow Jesus. So this morning in conclusion... We've looked at the resurrection of Lazarus, considered together how our unbelief grieves Jesus, how our, belief, our unbelief blinds us to the truth, how our belief 
allows us to see the glory of God and how our belief in Jesus is justified by the miracle of his resurrection. Let's pray together.